0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to a long-awaited episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me for this conversation about Christopher Nolan's latest mind bender are my best friend, co-host, and fellow Nolan fanatic, Patrick. Hello, everyone. And also our buddy from down under, Zohab Ali from the Midnight Double Feature podcast. Good day, guys. Oh, he said good day. I'm so glad you said good day. And it's daytime. Yeah. <laughs> and for him, it is right. <laughs> so it's <Yeah>. appropriate. <laughs> He's inverted it, it backward. <laughs> no, we're inverted. Or in the future. We're inverted from him. Yeah. Yeah. How many times are we going to make jokes about this throughout the podcast? (laughs) Constant. We were inverted. That's the answer. (laughs) Well, you guys might remember Zoheb's first time with us discussing Shutter Island back in episode 246. But in case you missed it, this is your call to be sure and check that one out because it was a fantastic time. We love that conversation. And considering his outspoken love of Tenet, we knew that we wanted to have him join us for this one, too. We have one goal today, folks, and that is to make this, the podcast episode, only one you have to listen to once you understand to be sure you can actually hear what we have to say, <laughs> but no <laughs> subtitles necessary for this podcast, but jokes aside, uh, I'm excited and ready to get into this one, guys. So let's just do it. We're going to start with one word takeaways as we always do.
2: And so, you get to go first. So my one word takeaway, and I thought about this for a very long time, is spherical, I thought about Spherical because if I think about movies, the way I think about movies is um, you know, start to finish, I'm um, starting from one end and going to the other in a, I guess, a line, right? Like a spectrum. This, <laughs> this is circular. Um, I mean, you know, it, wherever you, if you try to make an entry point from any part of this movie, you are going to be kind of like pulling a, a ball of yarn that's never going to end. It's just going to keep going. It's going to, it's going to, lead right back to, to the beginning it's going to lead right back to a different point in time of the movie because there are parts in this movie that are just so relevant to each other you know you can't have one part in this movie that's not relevant to another like you know it, so I thought about Circular but I was like Circular's not really doing it justice either um, this is more three dimensional <laughs> so I kind of went with Spherical because no matter which side or depth you're trying to approach this movie you're going to you're gonna you're gonna need some more information at some point um that's the best way i can kind of describe my one word takeaway and it's not really a descriptor of the movie itself the plot or anything like that or the themes it's more about the actual movie itself as a as as a meta as a meta uh piece of media Nothing wrong with
1: that, man, at all. It's all about how you think about it. And that's what makes it interesting is we're not trying to find the, you know, consensus word. We just want to know what it is to you, which makes it really interesting because I never would have thought spherical, but it makes perfect sense as well. So, uh, Patrick, what did you come out of this one with?
2: The word again.
0: I know that Christopher Nolan loves having all of his movies in the theater, and I don't think he would ever have them leave the theater if he could help it. But I'm grateful that this movie was not experienced by me in the theaters because I had to watch things again. The whole movie and at times certain parts of it. So I had the rewind button several times. Wait, what did they say? Turn the subtitles on to make sure I didn't miss anything. And at the same time, this comes again from a director who likes to play with time. Every film that I've seen of his, including Insomnia deals with this idea of time, time of day, time in your head, time in your dreams, time in space, and now time in something else <laughs> entirely. And I feel like what Nolan does maybe to his detriment, maybe to his credit, is he's gotten more expensive with his ideas. And but what's comforting about his movies is that we get similar things again when i see him christopher nolan movie i know i'm going to get something about this again and maybe as he's going through his directorial complexities as he's getting older maybe his dialogue gets a little bit less important because as we've seen with this and with uh and with dunkirk dialogue is probably less important than than other things but Using the word again, I really want to hone in on the fact that we get that with him. We get some of the similar things, and it's comforting. Even though it can be complex, it's comforting to know that we know a director's M.O., so going into his films, we can expect something again, even if it surprises us, exceeds our expectations, or even doesn't meet our expectations. It is something about a director's trademark that allows us to be able to appreciate what we're seeing and so we can kind of prep for that and then we run across by Tenet just like we run across a movie like Interstellar or Dunker. we realize okay I thought I knew you but I kind of don't you're surprising me so maybe surprise is another one but now I'm going to stick with again just because the movie obviously repeats a lot and your experience needs to repeat a lot and we'll talk more about that later but also we get some of those things with the director that is familiar. And I think that helps enhance your movie experience when it comes to a Christopher
1: Nolan movie. Yeah. And that last sentence I think is spot on and I can totally agree with that. My one word takeaway is inverted. Previously the most memorable use of the word inverted came in one of my five favorite films ever. That being top gun, of course, And so I think it was fitting that my favorite director of all time would be the one to bring the word into pop culture lexicon again. The actual definition of inverted, the word means to put upside down or in the opposite position, order or arrangement. And the way that Nolan uses it to describe time travel in this film is equal parts confusing and intriguing. He has a way, a style, as you said, Patrick, an M.O., of taking high-concept storytelling and playing with it and applying it to different genres that interest him, whether it's a heist movie or a film noir or a spy flick or a space exploration adventure or a war movie. It's always unique in the way that he brings style to those genres. And boy, is tenant no different. It is literally, in many ways, him turning our own expectations of the order of a spy film upside down. He plays with the elements of it, but arranges them in a different way to make something that is wholly his own. And he has been so perfect at accomplishing this in the past that even the slightest missteps can feel like a letdown. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at, Patrick. Once I got over that, and I will admit, my first viewing of Tenet in the theater was a bit of a letdown. It just wasn't quite what I wanted from that very first moment. But once I got past that, and I've seen it a couple more times, I've begun to love Tenet for what it is instead of what I expected it to be when it got announced. With that, we are going to go ahead and now dip into our spoiler section of the podcast. We're going to get deep we're going to get confusing, and we hope that you're ready for this. So you've been warned, and away we go. Guys, I want to tackle the big one right away. <laughs> I want to kind of get this on the table and talk through this question. And then after this, we can start to get into kind of the meat of Tenet and break down the film's story and what Nolan does in the particular film more specifically. But I want to talk in a broad stroke first. Can a film be too confusing? Because... There are people that will say yes, there are people that will say no, and I want to know from your perspectives what makes a story worth seeing multiple times to, and I put this in air quotes, to get it, to understand it, to enjoy it, and ultimately, do we need to fully understand a story to enjoy it? And Where do we fall on this as a trio of people? And I wonder if we're going to have different opinions about this or if we're going to all feel the same. Um, And I I just kind of want to talk through what you guys think about confusing movies in general. Time travel movies in general often present this hurdle that we have to get past. And I'll be honest and say up front that I'm about 50-50 on these things. 50% of them I tend to really love and they are amongst my favorite movies like favorite movie type story ever. You're talking like a looper something like that but then there's movies like Primer right where Patrick and I talked about on the podcast and I'll tell you like it's just it's a lot of work for me and I don't find that one as enjoyable and so it's not just time travel yes time travel no but sort of for me it's kind of What are the elements around the time travel and the confusing part of the movie? Are they enough to draw me in? And so for me, something like Tenet, I enjoy the acting. I enjoy the performance. I enjoy the characters. I love me some Kenneth Branagh chewing up scenery. I don't care how Russian he is or not. I don't care how much he fits in a story or not. I want to watch Kenneth Branagh in anything. I just love the man, right? He's always a highlight. Same thing went with Murder from the Orient Express. Didn't love the movie, but my gosh just give me him as Poirot. I'm there, you know? Um, and so for me, I, I kind of like these elements or the action, you know, the way in which the craziness is presented is visually simulating. And so I find myself usually more willing to go along for the ride, whether I understand it or not. So where do you guys fall on that on whether a movie can be too confusing or not? So, yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, I think, this is a this is a discussion a one of my co-hosts and i got into uh and when i say discussion uh i mean uh to quote sator i mean spirited debate um (laughs) did anybody end up with their
1: balls in their throat
2: (laughs) (laughs) thank god thank god i hope not (laughs) (laughs) um of course no one tried to crack on to each other's wives or anything like that but um no, this was uh, this is a, a, a truly an interesting question because this is the elephant in the room. Um, now, I think there is two ways that you can approach this. I think yes and no, a film can be too confusing. And that might sound like a cop-out, but a film can be too confusing if it's not written well, if it's not, uh, you know, obviously produced well. But here's the thing about Nolan. We know who Nolan is. <laughs> we know, I mean, Patrick, you said... You know, we can live in the comfort that we are about to watch a Christopher Nolan film, and this is someone who has delivered not only some of the best movies of all time, but you know, just absolute showstoppers. I mean, like movies that are studied and movies that are talked about in in every circle, not just you know, uh, film schools, but in 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 pop culture. You know, you can like my parents know who Christopher Nolan is for God's sake. Um, so you know. If, we, if, we're, if you're watching a movie made by someone who is not very competent, you know, is very uh, wishy-washy when they write their dialogue and where they choose to deliver exposition, um, then yes, I think a film can be too confusing. You know, if, they, if, they, if their ambition outweighs their, I guess, skill in writing or writing dialogue or writing story. But I think here, talking about Tenet, I don't think a film can be too confusing or rather this film can be too confusing. I think, I think this is designed to challenge us. I think uh, Christopher Nolan a hundred percent made this to be complex, to be watched multiple times, uh, very much like inception back in the day. Um, I mean, I remember 11 years ago, inception comes out and it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's mind boggling. Obviously I understood the story first time through, but I picked up things over the last decade that was just like, oh my God, I can't believe that was there. You know, he seeded that moment. Um, But there's something about this movie that I think we should talk about when we, when we, when we say, when we ask the question, can a film be too confusing? The sound mix of this movie is up for debate. (laughs) I mean, the jury's out on whether it's good, whether it's bad. I watched this movie five times at the cinema, um, and each time I watched it in different cinema, a different location. Um, the first time I saw it, I caught things, but sometimes I didn't catch things, and I was like, the, the score is too loud, it outweighs the actual dialogue. I'm not, you know, I walked away being a little, you know, but the second time through, a different location, it was fantastic, uh, and I caught everything. And maybe it's because I was listening more intently, because I knew, you know, the first time around, I didn't catch everything. The third time, you know, somewhere again in the middle. Fourth time, it was better. So, you know, it, it, it was it was kind of strange. And I think, you know, that particular technical issue lend, lends itself to uh, me being or audiences being confused. Um, you know, that that is one particular element of it. But then you have other elements where if an audience member does not know what a hypercenter is or posterity means... That is going to lead to some things, to some issues. Like you know, like if if someone's sitting in the dark in a cinema where they can't check their phone, or rather shouldn't check their phone, um, <laughs> that's going to lead to some confusion because I had no idea what an what a hypercenter was. I was like, what What are you talking about? What Siri, is a hypercenter? What
1: is temporal
2: pincer <laughs> movement? <laughs> right. See, I understand temporal pincer movement because I mean, like, I love war films, I love action films, and pincer movements. You know, you do them in video games all the time, right? And temporal just, you know, just means time, right? So, yeah, I don't think a film can be too confusing. I think all of the elements in this movie are there. All the puzzle pieces are there. It's just you need to take the time to find them, sift through them, and sort them out. And I think that's where people get a little... Either defensive or they switch off entirely. If you can't see it or if you can't see it and enjoy the entirety of the film on the first watch, then you're going to come away frustrated. And I get that everyone views movies in you know their own kind of way. Um, I'm someone who watches things multiple times over and over until I quote get everything. So until until I've I've drained all of the energy from the movie and you know applied it to myself. <laughs> There
0: are a lot of things that you could say about Tenet, and confuse, confusing is definitely one of them. Zohab, you make a great point that the sound mix has to be an integral part of it. And I say that because when you create a movie like this, and we'll just, for the sake of argument, I want to use Primer and, the, and Christopher Nolan's other movies as an example. Dunkirk, specifically, was intentional about keeping the dialogue vague because that wasn't what we were trying to hear. He wanted us to get into the world of this survival mindset where you're not hearing stuff clearly. You're in a chaotic world, made perfect sense. Movies like Primer are are all about the science and they make a lot of assumptions to their audience about the way in which things are, are happening. There's very little exposition. There's very little explanation in a movie like Primer. Coherence, which I think is kind of a sister movie of of Primer, does what I consider a better job of explaining to the audience through the conversation of its actors, of its characters, what might be going on. And for me personally, those are the kinds of movies I like. I like to come for the story and then stay for the sci-fi. Interstellar is my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. And it's because of that very reason, okay? It's because the story itself feels cohesive. It feels balanced. It feels completely just here. Here's the story. And there are confusing parts to it. But it has just enough exposition to keep me kind of going, oh, that's what a black hole is. And you know what? I left the theater loving the movie and saying, man, I was so connected to these characters. And I understood what the story was telling me but I didn't quite get the way in which he got from point A to point B. But that was okay, because the next time I watched it, I was more focused on that. Tenet is harder for me to do, because even with the dialogue that we get, because of the sound mix or because of the way it's explained, we don't get a lot of that, here's what this means in a cohesive way. And so what happens is, you might have this great kind of thriller action crime spy genre being thrown at you but there there are a lot of elements that are being used to help push that story along that almost become just as distracting or important when you look at inception he has his story in mind and he uses the elements of inception along with exposition by the way to help bring you in there's that great scene with um i can't remember Her name now, or his name now now that she's (laughs) transitioned, but she's being given an explanation of what it's like inside that world. Yes, and when you see that event take place, you know that you're part of that conversation. You're you're being explained to, and so for the rest of the movie, we kind of understand the mechanics of what the world is like. Same thing with Interstellar. To an extent, we don't have to be astrophysicists to understand everything. But Nolan didn't necessarily depend on those things. He used them as a way to get from beginning to end. Dunkirk was different in that he uses time to sort of create isolation in these different points telling a historical story. But then when we get to Tenet, for me, it became distracting because you were given this information and then you were trying to piece that together in part of the story where that was being acted out and then something else happened and you're like wait and so you have these rabbit trails that you're like wait should I focus on this or should I focus on that and it and it's fun it's fun to do that but if you have already lost and the story has gotten lost which it did for me it makes those elements equally as frustrating because it's like I don't know what I'm supposed to hang my hat on at this point it doesn't mean I didn't like it. I mean, I got what the story was doing. And by the end of the film, it creates this nice, oh, okay, I'm going to go back. I'm going to look at these things a little bit closer. But in these other films, Nolan gives us at least something to grab onto as an anchor to say, all right, that's the concept. The science of Tenet, to me, feels so like out there that he's just essentially making stuff up, which is fine. You can, I mean, you live in a Star Trek world, you can make up a warp drive and you can do all these different things. But I didn't feel like I had enough time to sort of live in that kind of world and saying, okay, I understand the mechanics of what you're trying to do. And therefore, because those things became sort of ambiguous, it made it difficult for me to enjoy the main, like, a plot that he was that he was telling us by then the movie I won't say I got it because I didn't and my second time through I got it a little bit more with the help of the internet but I don't want to be that guy like I definitely not want to be that guy in the theater who's like holding my phone up and saying, wait a minute but I don't want to be that guy on my couch either because I enjoy the pure, your purity of actually enjoying a movie. I'm going to sit down with Interstellar, turn the lights off and watch it. And then afterwards, I'm going to go to the book, the companion book, and start reading about black holes. I want to do that with Tenet, but there's not enough in the movie that allows me to have that kind of crutch so I can enjoy the movie and sort of dismiss the things that I don't understand for the sake of the enjoyment. There's really, for me more distractions than anything else. So it did take away from my movie experience both times, actually.
1: So I want to clarify something more for the listeners and you guys, but maybe for you guys too, because I've been reading Christopher Nolan's book and it's really not, I guess it's not Nolan's book. It's a book by an author named Tom Schoen, who was able to sit down and spend a long period of time with Nolan and really have a ton of different conversations with him over uh, many different interviews and it's phenomenal. I cannot recommend it enough if you're a Nolan fanatic like I we are.
2: It. I saw your rating and I was like, I'm going to buy this. <laughs> Dude, it is.
1: It is phenomenal. I know Patrick's got it on his read list here in the next couple months. It, it is amazing. It's taken everything in me not to just constantly text Patrick stories like every single morning when I hear something new. I've been really like reserved about what I shared. But I will say... I skipped forward. I was almost to this chapter anyway. I was almost done with the book, but I went ahead and I'm, I'm in the Interstellar chapter. And what I've been doing is now I'm going on a tangent. But I've I've been rewatching each movie except that Man Trilogy because we just did it recently. But every movie I've rewatched as I read that chapter to kind of enjoy the new insights. And boy, is there a lot of insight. But I skipped forward to listen to the Tenant chapter, and it's not as in depth because I think it's it's still fresh. The it was. The movie wasn't even out yet when he was talking to him about the book. Um, but what I learned from it, a couple things. One I'll mention later, but specific to this conversation is Nolan said about Tenet and about all of his films repeatedly. He does not set out to do things in the way that we may think he does or directors in general do. He never said to himself, "I want to make another Inception." He got an idea. He's had this idea for a while, and a lot of these ideas I've learned actually come from Jonathan Nolan, his brother, who he calls Jonah, frequently. And, like, he says Jonah had the idea for Memento, and then they started writing it. Jonah had the idea for this, and then Chris started writing this while Jonathan was writing Inception. And he doesn't try to do anything for the audience. He very specifically avoids that he follows the story through to his own heart and what he thinks it should be and in his head the amount of exposition we get the explanations we get are all he needs and that's his goal he does not attempt to write his movie in a way that an audience member is going to see it he is very adamant about it being important that directors are true to themselves and true to their stories is how he puts it. And they write the honest movie and it turns out how it turns out and people receive it how they receive it. And he says, you know, you can really tell when you're watching a movie if the director doesn't believe it or believe in it fully. I found that fascinating. I also learned that he reached back out to Kip Thorne about this movie and some of the science. And while they were having conversations, it became very evident That This was not Interstellar, and this was not a movie where we were going to try and make the science be accurate and representative of the way that we understand the world today as human beings. He was going to lean more into theoretical concepts because that's the way he wanted to be able to explore this, and it really kind of hinges on this idea of Oppenheimer and the nuclear bomb. And what happens, there's a moment in the movie, I actually didn't catch it my whole first viewing, it took my second viewing and then into my third before I really started to understand this part of the film. And it's really what it hinges on is like, they're trying to, un- the future is trying to undo what was the equivalent or what would be the equivalent of the nuclear bomb. So it's the, it's the exact same thing as if we were to say, let's go back in time, let's not bomb or let's not create the nuclear bomb so that nagasaki and hiroshima can't happen and so that the world can never be held hostage by this device and that was really the idea behind the story of this and i just i find that fascinating so i wanted to kind of say that because i didn't know you know like on a scale of one to ten where we all are with being confused about the movie you know if one is total confusion and 10 is We're Inside Nolan's Head. I would say I'm probably at about a seven ish right now after three viewings and a ton of research. Like, where are you, Patrick?
0: Probably at a four. Okay. And, and I'll say this that I respect the crap out of Christopher Nolan and his integrity as a director. And I absolutely believe in what he says. At the same time, as a director who's making feature films for a production company, there is a level of accountability, not necessarily studio interference, but there is a level of expectation that an audience is seeing this. And you're establishing credibility as a director. You have street cred. I'm not saying that he should make a movie for the people, but you're going to have misses. And for me, in the Nolan verse, this is a miss, but it's a miss coming down from like, wow, interstellar, cool inception and it sits kind of in the middle between insomnia and memento because it's still great and look i think nolan's movies are made to be watched more than once and not just because you need clarity but because they're just that good and i think this stands as one of those it just takes more and if, i'm not going to say if you have to read a book to get in nolan's head that's fine but i would say part of me is saying you shouldn't have to but then that's not christopher nolan
1: Exactly, exactly. And I'm not saying we need to necessarily debate whether or not that's good or bad, we can, but I'm just saying that's (laughs) where he's coming from. I want to make sure that people out there at least understand his position, you know, and and where his approach was for this. What about you, Zoheb? Where are you on this scale of one to ten after your, like, twelve viewings of this movie?
2: Yeah, look, my, my, the amount of my, I've actually lost count how many times I've seen this. Um, I... Um, again, five times in the movies, um, uh, I bought it on digital before, like, you know, before it released on, on hard copy. And then I bought the hard copy. I bought a steel book. Um, so I'm saying this quite a bit. Um, I am sitting on a solid eight. Um, and I, I think I've kind of got it down pat. Um, but then like, I, I would, I would watch it again. I'm just like, wait, okay. Yes. Wait. Okay. Yes. So I think, I think I've kind of like got a handle on it. If I can just just add a little bit to what you were saying, Patrick, and I hate to backtrack. I'm not backtracking a lot, Um, but I I think with uh, what you were saying about accountability, Aaron, I was about to play devil's advocate and mention that. Yes. While a hundred percent, a creative should be able to put on screen, whatever they intend. I mean, you know, we're sitting right on the cusp of the Zack Snyder cut. I mean, you know, that's a whole thing as well, but, he patrick you are right the studio did give him 200 million dollars to realize that 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 story and you know as much as we would like to you know create a blank blank canvas with a blank check the accountability is is a, is a major factor um, I mean Warner Brothers has investors Warner Brothers has you know uh, financiers that I think, uh, and, and this is not to say that, you know, when, when he was given money, he was not given metrics that he had to hit. And, you know, we can talk about whether Tenet hit those metrics. I don't think they did. Um, but, uh, sorry, to, in order to be considered, uh, quote, successful. But I think, you know, Nolan is, when, you, when you're quoting him, Aaron, that is the best case scenario for a creative to be in. Uh, but I don't think it's the most realistic scenario.
1: That's totally fair. No, I completely agree with you. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be consequences. And I, I have this conversation with people all the time. If truth is truth and we can talk about whether or not someone should be quote unquote allowed to do a thing, but like the bottom line is being allowed or being, you know, able to do something is different than having to deal independent of the fact that you also have to then suffer the consequences of said thing that you are allowed to do so he may be allowed and i think he should be allowed to do that but it's not up to me it's up to the studio how much risk they want to take right and obviously he has earned plenty of clout in order to take those risks and they know what they're getting into in some regards and yes ultimately he needs to be able to take that criticism and except if the audience doesn't respond to his film in the way that he expects them to, that that is on you, and you, no one else, <laughs> because you were so adamant that you were going to do it this way. Well, okay, moving into the specifics of the film, I wanted to let's start at the beginning. Is there anyone else better in this business at opening scenes than Christopher Nolan? Because the first thing that I realize when I'm rewatching this for future times is how every single one of his action movies seems to have these incredible momentum driven moments that get you into this world that we are going to be playing in they're not going to explain everything but you look at the dark knight and it is as memorable as they come interstellar has a fantastic opening sequence inception Starts right there in the dreams and puts you in the mix. And here we have the opera house and questions being asked. And this, you know, it's just incredible, amazing action sequence, um, that is taking place. And so did that put you in the mindset for this film or is there a part of you that is maybe set up for failure because you're watching this action sequence, and it's very heavy in action and non-explanatory. I mean, there's some dialogue, but we don't know what the words mean yet. We don't know what's actually going on. Does it set us up to maybe be expecting something more along the lines of this straightforward action sequence? So how, how do you feel like Nolan is, in this movie, is getting us into this picture in this story?
2: Yeah, well, firstly, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say, and look, this is a, a bold statement but this is my favorite opening that Christopher Nolan has ever made. I think just in terms of just technically, it's probably the best. I mean, you know, with, uh, with the protagonist, as we, as he rushes with the rest of the SWAT team and we just focus, uh, on a close up of the mask. And, uh, you know, even when they're pouring the gas in, um, and, you know, they're kind of like stacked up against the doors and we wait for Ludwig Goranson's score to hit the base as soon as they start running. Um, to, to kind of splinter off it, to me it's it's the most astounding opening scene that he's done and that is again a bold statement considering the dark knight is in the mix so um you know i think this is just an absolutely astounding opening scene um now in terms of expectations and what this scene sets up for the rest of the film i think patrick you oh, sorry patrick uh aaron you're kind of yeah, you're, 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 you're getting close to my thoughts on it because this scene 100% kind of like throws you right in the deep end. It's like, okay, hold on. We've seen a bullet come out of this the, ch- the chair backwards. We know that there's some kind of like something going on here. We know that this string attached to the backpack is going to mean something because it's a close up. Like who are these guys? Like why are these guys splintering off from the rest of the SWAT team? There are a lot of questions that are set up that will lead into the rest of the movie. I think this is a microcosm for the movie that we're going to get. But also, this sets up the spy genre and the spy feeling really well because, I mean, we have double crosses already. We have tortures already. Like, you know, like this is all before the the, the, the title card, Tenet. Um, you know, we got the, the protagonist actually being tortured. Um, and all of the expectations of, like, this is the kind of film that this is going to be, is given right here. They're they're all set up right here. And in my opinion, it's done in such a fantastic way. Um, I'm going to challenge your statement a little bit. uh, Whether, whether, whether Nolan is the best or whether there's anyone else in the business who rivals his opening scene, I'm going to put Quentin in there in the mix. So I think Quentin's opening scenes, especially from Pulp Fiction and Glorious and Reservoir Dogs, particularly um, those three are just kind of like all timers for me. Um, but yeah, no. This is this is an outstanding opening sequence and really sets up a lot, sets up a lot of questions, sets up a lot of what the audience is going to expect on a technical level from the rest of the movie. Uh, but also, and I know technically Ludwig Gorenson's score is on a technical level, but this is like the score is a character of its own. And even before we get the first frame, you know, we're coming in over that Warner Brothers logo, that red. Uh, We we start to get it already. Um, It's yeah, this this is a tremendous opening sequence.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree. And what I think all of Nolan's movies do, in particular, the high action, because Interstellar is a little bit more subdued, just like the movie should be. Right. That's a consistency with Nolan. He sets you up tonally for what kind of energy you're going to have. Is this going to be laid back? Is this going to be action adventure? Is this going to be a high concept or a maybe a heady kind of movie? And that's good. That's really, really good. But one thing that comes from all of them is the word, oh. Like <laughs> Every time I watch an opening sequence, there's a little piece of it that surprises me and says, you need to pay attention. And The Dark Knight's one of those things where, yeah. the bus is coming out and you're like oh that's how we did it oh that's kind of great and this is no different you mentioned the close-up of the string you mentioned the reversing of the bullet and you're like okay i need to i need to put my phone down need to stop distracting myself because it's time to watch and whether or not he's dropping little easter eggs or not what Nolan does really well is he gets your attention, and it doesn't have to be big bombastic stuff. It can be little details, close-ups, little pans across things. Like in *Interstellar*, what I love is the way he used the Dust Bowl documentary to intertwine with what was actually taking place. Like I was like, "Wait a minute, that looks like a Ken Burns." Do- oh yeah, oh oh, that was the O oh for me, right? It's like he's he's using an actual documentary to help tell the story about the world that these characters are living in. And Tenet does that same thing. It's just so quick and you have to be able to pay attention, but that, o is still there. It's just done in a way where you're like, okay, anytime a filmmaker zooms in on a little piece of something, something, you know, it's got some value to it. And so that's going to be in the back of your head. So he does lay these little pieces down for you, but the, Energy of the scene is so phenomenal, and I love the tracking shots. I love the way in which we are like, I mean, I'm feeling a little like tense myself of going, I don't know who's gonna be the bad guy or the good guy here. I don't know who I'm supposed to be rooting for, but I just know that I need to get out of this opera house because something bad's gonna happen. And of course, it's all done just really quick thinking. So, what we get is that spy thriller tone of like, okay, people are going to be thinking on their feet, they're going to be making really quick decisions, and I need to be, if I'm going to be along for this ride, I need to make sure that I'm kind of walking through these decisions with them. Not walking, but running. And so by the time we get to the like, crescendo, and then it kind of goes off this kind of tonal cliff of like, <gasps> okay, here we are. Then we get a chance to breathe, and we're like, okay, what did I just see? I'm trying to process it. And again, I had the fortunate uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to pause the movie and kind of go, okay, well, what did I just see? But the theatrical experience is probably something completely different. Cause you're like, okay, do I have time to process what I just saw? And I think there's some excitement in that because that's kind of what a spy thriller does is it leaves you kind of wondering, what did I miss? Did I miss some clues here? You know, if I'm James Bond, did I, did I catch everything that I needed to in that particular moment enough so that when I move on to my next mission, I'll have all that information. And he captures that in that opening scene, which is really, really well done.
1: Agreed. I'm glad you guys liked it too. I was worried for a minute because I didn't know how you felt about it. I was like, I hope they don't hate this freaking thing. And it's awesome in the theater, Patrick. I, like that is one thing it, it does. Like when his momentum is there and it's not expository heavily, the sound in the theater experience is incredible. Uh, and just the way that the sound editing takes place. It's just like watching Dunkirk when you kind of, you can hear everything and you can feel it reverberating. Um,
2: that bass hit. Gosh, um, that bass I mean, hit. The, the yeah, yeah. yeah. And when we, you know, see the 747, it's, it's all, it's all there. And, you know, the, I, I wish you saw this in the cinema metric, you know, on your first experience, cause it was, it was something. Or a later experience, you know, once you maybe
1: understand it better, even whatever works better, but yeah, I turned up my surround sound and I, t- I put on the Facebook post to my roommate. I tagged him and I was like, hey, sorry, I'm turning this up. Get ready because <laughs> you're about to hear Tenant through the floor. Well, when it comes to characters, uh, Tenant can be difficult to latch onto at times, I think, because there is not a lot of emotion coming from them. And I want to talk about that and whether or not you agree with that. <laughs> Frankly, Nolan himself has stated in the past and in this book he talks about it during Inception that he didn't really feel Inception was a very emotional film in the beginning because he doesn't see heist films as highly emotional and I learned that in that movie Leonardo DiCaprio was actually the reason that we got the emotional story between Cobb and Mal that that really wasn't going to happen the way that we ended up getting it. So believe it or not, it's not just Nolan that we have to give credit to because Leo sort of demanded that their arc be given more emotional weight and that it matter more. And thankfully, Christopher listened to Leo, um, one of my favorite actors of all time, which is great. And absolutely also the star of the last movie we all three talked about together, Shutter Island. But uh, yeah, so I thought that that was neat. And it really informed some of what we see, what we see here. And how Nolan kind of approached this. And he said from the beginning that he wasn't trying to make this interstellar. So it wasn't ever going to have that sort of emotional crux. But the thing that really was interesting was hearing him tell me. And he, well, he wasn't telling me directly, but, you know, through this book. That the relationship between the protagonist and Kat was a romance. And it was meant and intended to be more of what your typical story would be where they come together he's kind of helping her to get out of this you know abusive relationship and they're going to be in a relationship and through filming the story it became very clear that the love story is the protagonist in neil and john david washington was like it doesn't work we're not it it doesn't work with me and cat like this and Elizabeth the Bicky in this this relationship is not what we need to be focused on because this is where naturally the story is taking us and again he listened to his actors he agreed they focused in on that and I'll tell you that's what i felt watching this movie and i it was going to have a connecting point it would be the end of this movie it would be neil and the protagonist saying goodbye to each other and the way in which that dialogue kind of comes together because I love everything about the moments that they are talking to each other on screen, the subtle and mysterious ways Neil explains things to him. One of the great things we talked about watching multiple times this movie specifically, you're never going to catch these things on a first viewing because you don't know that they matter when you're watching it. But something like when Neil first sits down in the, lobby of the hotel with the protagonist and he orders the protagonist drink and then he's like no 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 that's not what i want you know i want this to drink and he's like you don't drink when you're on the job and he's like well how would you know that
2: those are like i prefer soda water
1: feels like throwaway lines right at the moment you're just like oh this is just kind of witty guys like trying to you know prop up their chest against each other kind of thing no why does Neil know that uh obvious once you see the movie why neil knows that it's because They've been together and they've spent all this time together and the way that he doesn't want to reveal information because he doesn't want to mess up the future and the way that things are going to go with the interactions that they're going to have, as well as obviously their importance to the world. So everything about their relationship, I just found to be really compelling. And on future watches, it's the thing that I find myself honing in on more. And it's the crux of the movie that, Like I said earlier, when I can find myself getting confused, I don't care because I love the protagonist and Neil's relationship so much, and I actually love the acting very much too. I think that it's a little bit frustrating when people critique it in a way that they say, you know, John David Washington is boring and doesn't, listen, acting is not always Kenneth Branagh as Sator. That's that character, right? That is who he is supposed to be. John David Washington's character of the protagonist, I think, is brilliantly acted. He is so, like, even-keeled, but there is a razor-sharp wit, intelligence, and snark to this character that I love listening to. And then, likewise, just the way that Neil reveals information as well. And Robert Pattinson does that, I think is great. Um, But yeah, that line at the end, guys, when they're talking about it and he's like, for me, I think this is the end of a beautiful friendship. And the protagonist says, but for me, it's just the beginning. And Neil says, we get up to some stuff. You're going to love it. You'll see. And I just, I think that that's great, right? I think that that is a beautiful, beautiful relationship in this movie. And I'm so glad that we didn't go the typical romantic route um and instead we get a protagonist who is sort of helping cat but not saving cat he is assisting cat in a way that she needs or wants his help so that she can take agency herself and control and change her own situation and i just i find that really important because people also like to talk crap about how no one can't write women and i'll admit like I would like to see some stronger women in Nolan films too, but we do get at least a hint of that through Kat and through Priya in this movie. Priya is a boss. Like, I mean, she could be in the movie more. She's only dropping in every few minutes, every 30 minutes or so to drop some exposition and ultimately get shot in the head. But she is super in control. Like she's running the freaking whole shebang, guys. It's not like (laughs) she's just some... Woman who's like thrown to the side. She's massively important. And so I like that a lot. And I just want to see what you guys thought about the relationships in the film, what you thought about the emotion. Maybe talk about that line. There's one line in the movie if you want to talk about this, where Clements Posey, I don't know what the character name is in the movie, but she's explaining to the protagonist about how things become inverted, and she says, Don't try to understand it, feel it. And she's obviously talking about the actual material and how he processes that. But Nolan is, you know, well known for kind of putting lines in his film that speak a lot of times directly to an audience and kind of encourages them in how they can, en- can engage with the movie. Did you take it that way? Did you s- realize that was speaking to you and say, okay, I'm not going to try to understand it. I'm just going to try and feel it. And is there enough to feel, okay, I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you. So, so have take it away.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So before I begin, um, it, And depending on which uh, bandwagon you're on or what you're reading and what you choose to believe, maybe it's on purpose that we don't know Clemens Posey's real name, Clemens Posey's real name, because there are theories abound that I'm not going to get into here. Um, So I'm just going to leave that right there. But um, yeah, look, very much uh, on my first watch, uh, when she says don't try to understand it, feel it, that, that is the way I approach every movie kind of like on the first watch. You know, if they are presenting me with a concept or an idea that is kind of like out there, I don't try and challenge the logic of it as much as I should on that first watch because I want to, I want to go where the movie is kind of taking me, where the filmmaker is trying to take me. That's where I want to go. And, you know, on the second watch, third watch, however many... Um, that's when I start to look at a movie a bit more critically, and I start to think a bit more critically about it. Um, so, oftentimes, I try not to give my opinion on a movie as complex as Tenet after the first watch. Um, you know, I, I talked about Tenet on on our podcast the second after the second time I saw it because I didn't feel comfortable um, talking about it after that first time. But talking about the relationships, I, I'm actually I, I want to get to each character the main three rather sort of like individually before i talk about the relationship so let's start off with the protagonist with the protagonist i think you're 100 percent right uh aaron um john david washington is witty and intelligent and quick thinking but these things not all of these things are apparent on a first watch because it's very bondian like the way it's approached uh When I say Bondian, I mean pre-Casino Royale, because Casino Royale took that James Bond and made him a bit more emotionally, quote, grounded, whereas the previous Bonds before that, uh, uh, they they display their character traits through action, through actions and what they do uh, and the way they uh, kind of achieve things. So I think John David Washington will slot perfectly into uh, pre-Daniel Craig, Uh, james bond um i think you know the way you know the way he delivers some lines is especially i mean when he's up there in in mumbai and he's like you know you're an arms dealer friend this is this may be the 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 easiest trigger i've ever had to pull just calling him friend i don't know there's just something about that like just the little you know I, i understand that might be in the script but it's just also the way that he just throws it away um you know like when he's just uh when they're on the road, even in, like, Tallinn, and, you know, just, just the, the amount of stress that's on his face, like, he's just, he's playing it so well. And I think, you know, people, people are very dismissive of his performance because they think that, you know, his character doesn't have, you know, a lot of depth, or, you know, he's not crying in every scene, or he's not overacting, and it's just, you know, it kind of, like, goes against what people are looking for in movies like this, I guess. Um, and I'm just like, man, like, I think he did a fantastic job, uh, when he's going toe to toe with Michael Caine, especially like that is just, he's just oozing charm. Um, and it's not easy to go toe to toe against Michael kane Um, but let me move on to, uh, Neil, uh, Neil is man, when you, when you, when the credits roll after that scene, uh, you know, in, in, in Russia, it's i'm just like i cannot wait to see this guy be batman i cannot wait to see to see uh god damn i was about to say robert patrick (laughs) robert pattinson oh my god um i can't wait to see him in more more stuff because he's just so so effortlessly charming um you know like the just his wardrobe how he walks you know when they're in the uh, when they're planning the the actual heist or the 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 break into the freeport, uh, we get like various shots of them around the airport that, and just the way he's using his hands to communicate and explain things, it's just so animated and it's just so kind of like engaging to watch these two characters kind of plan this out in a very Ocean's Eleven ish type of way and it's they make it so so fun to watch. Um, I think Neil is. A brilliant secondary character to the protagonist, and he's just, you know, Rob Pattinson just plays him so well. He's just so fun to watch. It could, this could have gone so, so poorly if you didn't have someone as charismatic as Ron, Robert Pattinson. Um, and look, I'm gonna get to Kat, um, played by Elizabeth Debicki. and it's not that I want to badmouth my own countrymen because she's from <laughs> Melbourne. Um, I think she is the weakest sort of like, Element out of the three um but only as an individual um i think when you put her amongst these sorry in this in this trio or rather duo with the protagonist less so less so Neil, um she's you know she's a bit stronger uh but her by herself um with with the battered wife kind of like syndrome going on she she comes off at the beginning as a, a a little bit of a damsel in distress, you know. Someone needs to be rescued, and I don't, I don't want to belittle that. Like I don't want to be like, look, that's 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 a that's a terrible thing. It's just she doesn't have that much agency toward the beginning. Um, but then once she links up with the protagonist and she starts giving him information about the freeport and how she can get out of this situation and under out under the thumb of Sator. Then that's when I'm just like, okay, yeah, you know, she's she's doing she's doing a lot better. Until we get to the yacht right at the end, when she makes the conscious decision to execute Sator. I was just like, Oh my god, are we in spoiler territory? Yes we are. Um, to execute Sator and forego what she thinks is the rest of the world because her emotions just got to her. Um and it's just like, man, like that is a powerful decision to make. And I was here for it, <laughs> um, but yeah, talking about their relationships, uh, I think again the protagonist between between the protagonist and Cat, especially, uh, you know, you start to see that sort of like hero complex that the protagonist needs to needs to save Cat, but you also forget the element that hold on, he's doing this also to get extremely close to Sator like he needs a way into the Freeport because he's spending a lot of time there um so like there's like you know I'm just like I'm I'm missing these things on the first watch like is he just kind of like really in love with her is he wanting to only wanting to take her away from Sator so he can be with her but it's not really that it's 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 like all eyes are on the mission you know all eyes are on the goal the objective and you know that that is something that I missed the first time around Um, but yeah 100% right uh, Aaron I think you know this this is such a fantastic um, pairing with Neil and the protagonist because you don't know their particular relationship you just think that Neil is someone who's been brought in um, because he needs some help in Mumbai but that's just not the case Neil has been strategically placed here with the protagonist Um, and every Thing that he decides to give him every piece of information that he decides to withhold, um, everything matters, and I think Robin Panson plays that extremely well. You know, when it's you know calling the cavalry, what cavalry, and the lack of explanation until we get to a certain point in the movie, all of that is well timed and well acted by Robin Panson and John David Washington. You can feel the stress between them, th- these two like you can cut the tension with a knife. But yeah, I think I think everyone in this is is fantastic. Um I I love like you said Aaron, I love Kenneth Branagh in this movie. Um you know, he is dialing it all the way up to 11. But man, it's Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> like I mean, you know, he had some of the best moments in Dunkirk, right? I mean, like you know, we can always see it home. Um and it's just it's it's beautiful. Like it's it's a fantastic performance. He played it 100% on purpose all the way to 11.
1: Another book note, Nolan talks about the fact that he actually had to continually work with Brawner, and Brawner put in a lot of work himself to bring the character to what it eventually became because Brawner naturally kept, his words were, trying to make it poetic. Like, he kept trying to find some humanity in this character and like just some flowery nature of what braun is used to on his theater background and nolan was like no like you i know you can do it but you have to he's brutish he is absolutely brutish and a thug and you have to play him like that like we don't i don't want you to make this character sympathetic for us like and Brana, and it had to work It had to really try to get there. I think that's a cool story to hear just because sometimes we think this is like an all-time great actor. And so it just, oh, it just comes naturally. The dude just shows up on set. He's given some lines. He says those lines, you know, walks around a certain way and like, oh, great Oscar worthy performance. That's how actors do it. But no, they actually have to try hard and sometimes go outside their comfort zone. So that was kind of yeah.
2: neat. Absolutely. I mean, when he's delivering the line, if I can't have you, no one can, you you feel that he's stepped into this guy's mind space for real. And that is horrifying when he's just looking into a rise and delivering that line.
0: When I look at the characters, I can see the criticism that it's not easy to latch onto them, particularly... From the very start, we don't have a name for John David Washington. He is a character. He is the protagonist. So in a lot of ways, Nolan is saying our main character is going to be a symbol. He's going to represent maybe not the everyman, but he's not. You could criticize him for and say that he's just not giving him a name because we don't want him to matter. But that's obviously not what Nolan's trying to do. I don't think he's using these characters as chess pieces to get to the end of the movie think that's part of it but but there's a level of charm in the casting of all of these actors they bring to the screen i really rarely pay attention to costumes but i feel like there is an elegance with each one of these guys and how they play these characters and how they interact with one another obviously during some of the heavier action sequences when they're covered with Battle uniforms you don't see that but there's that great conversation that the protagonist has uh, with Michael Caine and Michael Kane is especially British in this movie and I love the fact that in that dialogue before he leaves he hands him his Amex black and says you need to get a real suit because that does not say sophisticated and I really kind of paid attention to that in my second viewing, not the costumes in particular, but just how these characters carried themselves and the camaraderie that these two main characters have, the protagonist and Neil are, they go beyond a buddy cop type of relationship because we find out that is something that we Find out later. Oh yeah, they've experienced this before. There's loyalty that is sort of hinted at that we find out later. There's depth, and Pattinson. I I just I love him more as I see him in more things. I never got around to watching Twilight. I was in that massive majority or minority of like, eh, kind of done with the whole young adult stuff. And when you throw in sparkling vampires, I just don't want to do that. But it really does gear me up for wanting to see him don the cowl because he carries this charisma with him. And so does John David Washington. I hear Denzel in his voice when he is speaking. And Aaron, you, you were talking to me offline about this when I made the comment to you, he said, yeah, especially when he's using those lower tones that it's just real subtle, real subdued and just real, just kind of charismatic. Denzel is my favorite when he's just like, my man, you know, just real, you don't want to mess with me, because I'm just amazing. Even though he never says that necessarily. I exactly right. He is just confident in what he's doing, even when he's completely confused. Like, he never plays the, I don't know what the crap's going on here, even though half the time he's like, I'm just going to roll with it. But we never feel like we are in the dark alongside him. We feel like we're along the journey with him and we're sort of discovering this. But as audience, I found myself going, Man, I'm gonna latch onto your 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 coat here, your really nice Brook Brothers suit, and say, if you say so, I say so. All right. And the same thing with Neil, where you just kind of over the course of the film you sort of learn to trust these characters. Trust the Choices that they make, knowing that maybe it's not going to end up for the best. And I think that's where I connect with them is that not that they feel like everyman or they feel like people that I would hang out with, but they don't feel so detached like a James Bond, where you're watching them sort of tertiarily. You're watching them sort of alongside their adventure. And I think part of that has to do with the way that no one uses his camera work. So we're on the ground with them a lot of times. We're In their face, the choreography that we see backwards and forwards is very much a close kind of confined space type of choreography, as opposed to just seeing these wide shots of guys running backwards and forwards. We get that, but with our two characters, it's always at ground level. And I think that's what adds to the connection to those characters. Cat's the same way. I never saw a connection a romantic thing and i'm glad i didn't because her story wasn't about her relationship with the protagonist her story was about her son from the first moment we see her it's all about her relationship with her son and that never wavered and nolan never allowed that to waver it was always about getting her son getting her son and getting out from under rana's shadow so to see something else come in where there's a side relationship, that just wouldn't have made sense. And I thought it made her kind of endearing. It made her feel stronger to me, not like a damsel in distress or a Bond girl, someone that I felt empathetic for. I did or didn't agree with the method, but she comes across as smart. She comes across as both strong and weak because of this relationship that she has. And at the same time, she carries this motherly instinct of like, that's I'm mama bear most of the time. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay that way because my son is all that matters to me. I'm also glad that that didn't take the forefront. Like that wasn't the, the A plot, that it was part of this journey. And and also that it didn't feel like it was thrown in just for good merit because we had to kind of get introduced to this villain in and I thought it kind of made a lot of sense. He wasn't the mustache twirler, like he just felt domineering the the way in which he kind of did the swap with the paint with the drawing. I thought that was brilliant. And it kept that tone of spy thriller, which I think that's what Nolan wanted to do. But dropping these characters in and kind of treating them a little differently than you would in a spy thriller, I think that's what makes this a unique Nolan film.
1: Well, one of the things about spy thrillers is globe trotting action and that is one of the things that he specifically wanted to accomplish with this was to go to various locations and have these espionage elements and do big action set pieces which we get quite a few of throughout the film and there's plenty of it there's hand-to-hand action and combat there's gunplay and there's lots of big things exploding and one well-known fact now is that he famously spent money out of the budget to buy an actual 747 to explode it in the hangar because he likes practical effects and he wants to do things that look real and i have a lot of respect for that i personally felt a little underwhelmed at the 747 explosion explosion and i thought that maybe there could have been a little bit more interesting and exciting editing taking place to, if you're going to blow up a real plane i thought maybe it was a little bit lackluster for my take of course i mean it was just blowing into a hangar i don't know what else you really were going to do but uh, you know there could have been a little more there but i really enjoyed the locations we get to visit nolan i guess has a real fascination with india and mumbai and some of these locations where he wants to go back and visit he's done it in multiple films now and that was cool bungee jumpable i think should be a word uh, regardless of whether it is or not Uh, so bungee jumping up was kind of cool just the way that they get up into priya's uh, penthouse, and then the way that they escape by just jumping out. I thought those were neat. And really, I learned a lot about the action through the special features, and I would recommend that anyone who even remotely loves or enjoys this film pick up the disc, watch through them, because there's a ton of information there. Learning about how the stunt people and the actors had to practice walking backwards, how they had to practice fighting in reverse, driving in reverse. These things are practically accomplished, which is mind-blowing. Almost more mind-blowing than the movie itself, to me, is the fact that they were able to learn to film backwards. Uh, One of the things in the book was that the cinematographer actually had the VFX team create him a monitor where he could see the mirrored version of the action that they were filming in the camera on a screen simultaneously. So he would have his camera shot going and then an actual reverse mirror shot of his action right next to it. It's, it's crazy. Like the way that this thing comes together, right. And the whole film kind of works towards that middle. It's, it's propulsive from the start at the opera house goes to the middle when protagonist comes through the turnstile and then you're, you're heading back to the same day in actual real time that the opera house took place only you're not at the opera house you're in stals 12 and so all of these different events kind of like these big set pieces that mark your journey through that um, very very cool just i love the idea of the, the wind farm out in the ocean and the sailing the pair i don't even know what it, kind of a sailing boat it was but it's like this incredibly unique speed sailing i think they
2: call them foils
1: foils. That's a, yeah, that's what it was. But like, no one finds these things that are real. And I think that that's part for me of what makes it an exceptional espionage movie is that he doesn't have a team make up things to put into this world. He goes out into the real world and he finds obscure things that are interesting to him. And then he puts them into his movie and So if you want to Google those things, you'll find out they actually exist. They just aren't, like, something that is around everywhere in the world, right, that you're going to notice or know about. So I really enjoyed everything about the action sequences in this. It was a highlight for me, um, and I I thought it was great. So what about you, Zoheb, from an action and globetrotting standpoint? Did this fulfill your needs of an espionage movie?
2: Oh, dude, 100%. I mean, look, I I think the expectations for this movie – uh, just just from a um, I guess genre standpoint. So you know, this was always kind of like billed as a, a a spy thriller. Um, like you know, we were never, you know, we were told very early on after Dunkirk, not long after Dunkirk uh, came out, um, that this this was you know his next one was going to be a spy thriller, and you know, knowing what we know about Nolan, is someone who is extremely keen on using practical effects and in-camera effects. You know, th- that, that was really exciting to me. I mean, you know, Bond, the Bond franchise and the Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible franchise, especially lately, have been a lot more focused on using practical effects. And that really, really boosts the quality of those particular films, especially the Mission Impossible films. So seeing, you know, getting ready for a Christopher Nolan-directed spy thriller that is primarily going to hinge on practical effects, to me, was just so exciting. And then this 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 article comes out where it's, that says, Tenet has under 300 VFX shot. Nolan says it's lower than most romantic comedies. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> are, you, are you kidding me? So I'm just like, how is he going to pull this off? And then we had the first trailer, and that ends with the uh, with the plane crash, and it's just like, oh my god, this is this is going to be an event, and it was, in my opinion, I thought this was a, you know, this was absolutely an event. You know, whether you whether you look at it as the movie that was quote going to save cinema, um, you know, given the given the era it came out in, to me it was always going to be the next Nolan movie, and the next Nolan movie is always an event. And whether this, you know, I think I think the biggest element that really makes this movie satisfy my expectation is Hoyt Van he- Hoytema's cinematography. I think this is this is someone that he used after uh, from Dunkirk, and you know he moved on from Roger Deakins after The Dark Knight. Oh, did Roger Deakins do Interstellar? I'm pretty sure he did. Uh, I know Feitzer
1: was with him for a long time. while yes, he was a long sorry, time. Yes, sure.
2: yeah. Um, sorry, um, let me just correct myself. So, um, Hoyt Van Hoytema was Interstellar as well. So, um, you know, I was I was 100% ready for that. And then, you know, seeing these shots of India and then Amalfi Coast, and I'm just like, oh my God, this is a Bond film. Like, this is a Nolan-level Bond film. Um, so for me, when I think of spy thriller I think of uh, yeah, absolutely gorgeous locations and very picturesque, you know, p- picturesque, you know, monuments and all of these things. Um, I think I think the action sequences are just so well executed. I, I'm going to agree with you to an extent, Aaron, um, that I think the, the the plane sequence probably could have been a bit more, but that also lends to the amount of hype that was behind that plane sequence. You know, it, it all goes in, it all feeds into expectation and delivering. Um, but I think you know, my favorite part of that scene is uh, the the cars that collect in its landing gear. That 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 to me is just the the icing on the cake. I'm just like, that is such a great touch. And you know, it like separating the light poles as it comes across. I'm just like, that is visually amazing. But yeah, I think this is an absolutely astounding movie and really, really met and exceeded my expectations as to with set pieces the multiple locations the fight the fighting i do want to talk about actually not you know we don't have to spend too much time on this but nolan as an action director i'm going to be uh i guess somewhat bold and say i don't love nolan as an action director before this movie i think the i think the action sequences in the dark Knight trilogy are okay i don't think they're particularly incredible you know i'm talking hand-to-hand and gunplay i don't particularly mean sort of like car chases because i think he's really well well sort of solid at car chases um the gunplay and inception seems a little too finely edited to me but here the hand-to-hand combat that we get between john david washington and john david washington um is astounding and you know the, the the actual incursion at the end in in stars twelve is beautiful to behold. The opening sequence is beautiful to behold. I think he really really stepped it up and was one hundred percent. I think he was a little cautious when he when he set out to make a spy movie because he knew that action was a massive element. So yeah, I think I, this 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 blew my mind and really uh, exceeded my expectations in terms of what I was going to get.
0: I didn't have any expectations going into this. I mean, I knew it was going to be a spy thriller. It felt like it had some flavorings of national treasure because of all the different places that it visited. And and those places had purpose. It wasn't just like, hey, let's just go to Dubai or let's just go here. They all felt like they had a reason to be in the movie and when you talk about the big action set pieces, I mean, nobody can hold a candle to the infinite runway in Fast and Furious. Let's just get that out of the way right now. Anytime you use a plane, you're going to, I will always compare it to that scene. So I'll just go ahead and say that. But I think that particular scene, if it's going to be criticized, I don't think you should really criticize it because of the fact that it, it's, this was not to, to create a diversion, not to be a massive explosion. I thought personally, the subtlety of the guy dumping gold bars outside the back, like it was like Tutan or something like that. I thought that was pretty phenomenal. I love the fact that there was this consciousness of making sure that the people on the plane were going to be safe, even though you're throwing them out. I mean, it, there's a sense of civility and morality that lives even in this place of of espionage. So. You kind of have this flavor of, of good guys versus bad guys, or good guys and kind of trying not to be collateral damage guys. And I thought that was pretty fun. But I think the two pieces that sort of set up the whole backwards, forwards, uh, the, what we call it the pinch, not the pinch, the, um help me out here. What was it called? So. Pinsel. Thank you. poor portal pincer movement. Sir. There you go. The, the tpm we'll call it that how about that just so i don't feel as weird saying it but the two scenes that really kind of illustrated that i thought were really well done i mean you had this scene that felt like it was something out of the matrix this highway scene with all these different vehicles again practical effects so good with the red and the blue subtlety kind of hinting at what was going to take place later on and then that final battle sequence that felt like something out of Starship Troopers. And so I think what Nolan does here is he borrows a lot. He doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. He's like, look, this would be a really great scene. Can we get a practical setup where this could actually happen and not have to use a whole bunch of VFX? Because I think what he recognizes with a lot of criticism for movies that use VFX is that's the thing that's going to stand out. If you're going to use a 3D model of something, it's going to get nitpicked. Because it has to look photorealistic. So for my money and for Nolan's Warner Brothers money, (laughs) I think that probably puts him in a position where he's like, look, if we can get practical as much as possible, let's do that. Because then our audience is focused on getting confused with the rest of our movie and not worrying about critiquing the things that are technically wrong with it. And the fact is, all of his movies look really good. They look really earthy. They feel even interstellar had a sense of groundedness to it because of yeah, exactly. You felt like you were in those scenes with the characters you were on the spaceship. Even in inception, you felt like you were in the dream sequence. Nothing felt like overly supernatural, even if it was kind of by definition that. So I think that's another good director trademark is that when you watch a Christopher Nolan movie, He's going to put importance into the set pieces and make sure that not only do they have purpose, but that they feel like they actually could exist, even if they're a bit beyond supernatural or even beyond the natural world. So this whole concept that Tenet gives us is sort of supported by these backwards running people. And in any other movie, you'd think, man, that looks really stupid. Look at these guys running backwards. But the way he films it, it's not that they feel for running backwards, but that it looks as though, okay, we're getting enough intimate moments with both sides running forward and, and going through their experience that when these pieces happen, when these characters are running backwards, it doesn't look weird. It doesn't look like, oh, the camera's just in reverse. No, they're soft movements they're short movements and he doesn't linger too much on those because he's already kind of explained and already shown us that this is what it's like like the whole briefing before all that kind of is a briefing for us to say all right when you watch this don't freak out because this is what i'm showing you and I, i love the fact that he doesn't spend too much time showing us that because it could get distracting
2: i think nolan also lives in that space of he knows what the audience wants and can temper their curiosity. So, you know, when we know that we're going back to Oslo in that, um, I guess shipping container, he knows that the audience is starting to kind of like piece together, probably what's going to happen. And when we, when we step out of that shipping container and we see the people running backwards and we see the plane kind of like burning backwards, um, he he knows that this is the this is what the audience is going to want to see and he plays with those expectations and curiosities because he understands what we as an audience want to see visually. Um and that's why it doesn't look stupid because we he, he sets these things up ahead of time so when they actually happen they're not jarring to watch. Yeah, that's a in really my opinion. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, you're right. He kind of preps
1: us to be able to see it in the way that we're going to be able to at least somewhat understand it, <laughs> to enjoy it at least in the the best possible way. And yeah, I forgot all about I didn't even mention that ending there that you were talking about Patrick, but that whole sequence is just an- amazing. It's incredible to watch. And you know, that's real. Like that's not the effects. It's not people walking backwards and then put into a camera it's actual human beings like marching backwards and you know as if they were moving or they are moving that way it's just it's phenomenal the choreography involved in that that you don't even really think about that in typical action movies because it's all about like the hand-to-hand combat but there's so much more here that has to happen uh, visually that is incredible to see well Kind of almost last but not least, do you think that Tenet is destined to become a cult classic? I ask that because a Ringer article posed this question the other day, and I wonder what you thought about this. Do you think that it was misunderstood on release? Do you think that the pandemic had so much to do with initial response to this film? Or do you think that it just is too... Hard to understand for a big portion of an audience, and it's just gonna always live in that place. Or do you think that there are gonna be legions of fans that really love it despite kind of the critical, lukewarm response to it? Like, does the bad budget matter, right? Does the fact that this movie cost what 250 plus million dollars to make affect its ability to be considered a cult classic? Just what are your thoughts on where you think we're going to view Tenet maybe five years from now as opposed to here in the
2: moment? That's definitely a good question, and I love this article because I, like a lot of the points you know raised are 100% valid. I mean, most cult classic films misunderstood when they're released, and then they end up, quote, failing, right? They end up disappearing from the populations, from, from people's minds, only to come back later and find some, like, where people find some kind of, like, new appreciation for them. Uh, See, I think that's where Tenet kind of, like, fails the criteria of it eventually becoming a cult classic because it seems like people are split somewhere down the middle. It seems like people, like, you know, there are, there's on 50% of of the side, people are appreciating it 100% for what it is, and on the other side, people are watching it once, Either liking it or disliking it, and are probably not going to come back because it's too challenging or it's too complex and this is something that we talked about in on our episode. We were just like this is this is a movie uh that is designed to challenge people and to keep them coming back and whether that's something that one particular audience member is going to like that depends on that particular audience member because everyone is different, everyone you know watches movies different way. Uh, some people are just you know i've seen it i'm good whatever i'm not going to think about it again i am like okay i'm going to watch this again <laughs> like uh, probably a million more times because i like to be challenged i like to find things in movies in artists creations that are not apparent on that obvious on the first time through so i think you know it becoming a cult classic i don't think i don't think it's going to end up being a cult classic i think it's just going to be A movie that we view in 10 years that's going to be like, okay, that was, I'm going to say that was awesome. (laughs) But I think some people are going to need, uh, I guess, not convincing, maybe a, probably going to be given an argument as to why I think it's good. (laughs) The same thing actually happened with the movie Us. um, And that is a very recent movie. A lot of people didn't, you know, didn't love it. I, I love it. And I ended up telling a lot of people why I loved it and they went back and watched it and they found a whole new appreciation for it. And that's, you know, that's, that's movie, that's movie discussions to me. I mean, like that is the, um, that's the joy. That's why we have a podcast. Um, so we can talk about these things and, you know, discuss these things. Um, so yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it's going to be a, a cult classic in the term, in the, in the, in the, you know, traditional sense. I think. People are going to find appreciation for it, uh, but here's the thing. And here's, I heard this on an interview. Unfortunately, I can't remember which podcast. Might have been Real Blend, um, but they were talking about the fact that this idea was created by Nolan years ago, and Nolan has multiple years head start. <laughs> you know, whereas we are just grappling with it right now. We're just grappling with it in a, a few months after release. I mean, obviously, the director is going to be way ahead of the audience, you know. Um, so, you know, we'll we'll see where it goes. I am hoping that you know this ends up being Nolan's uh, 2001, <laughs> which is a long shot, but I love this movie. This is one of my favorite movies of all time, actually. So,
0: good. I, I would. I would probably say I agree with what you're saying, Zohab. I don't see this as a cult classic. I would say this is something that is worthy to be appreciated an infinite number of times and recommended, but Mm -hmm. in certain conversations. Because when I talk about cult classics, I'm thinking about Fight Club. I'm thinking about Pulp Fiction. I'm thinking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, three movies that don't require a lot of thinking, but they have a lot of things that you could think about, you know, they, they all bring something to the table, but their narrative is pretty straightforward. And it's what's underneath the hood of the car that I think is what makes them a cult classic. Now you could say the same thing for tenant, but I think my criticism from earlier is sort of what keeps me from calling it that because of the fact that there's a lot of homework. There's a lot of thinking that you have to, there's a lot of work that you have to kind of do, appreciate it on multiple viewings. Doesn't make it bad, doesn't make it unappreciated, if that's a word. But it definitely doesn't leave me thinking that in ten years are we gonna look back and go, Man, that was something. <laughs> or maybe we will, and <laughs> we'll be thinking, okay. Or maybe no one's gonna up the ante even more and do something further way out there. Again, for me, Interstellar is where it's at. If I'm gonna give anybody an intro to enter to Christopher Nolan's brain. I may not go to Interstellar first because it's long, but I think it's probably the most complete of his films that kind of captures what I love about him as a director. So within his filmography, this might become one of the more edgier films in terms of being kind of his most experimental, his most ambitious. But I wouldn't necessarily consider it in the pantheon of of public opinion, a cult classic in the same way that like a clockwork orange or American psycho or something like that is.
1: Yeah. I I don't think it's going to be a cold classic. I think that that verbiage is really reserved for something that was truly misunderstood. And And we're not talking blockbusters that had a weak response. We're talking movies that just completely flew under the radar of general audiences and later emerged into a wider fandom because they got talked about so much that people were like, Oh, I got to seek that out. Not movies that had, you know, multi million dollar marketing campaigns and were the only movie in a theater during a pandemic and had all of these things, you know, attached to it. So I really don't think it can become a cult classic just by definition, in my opinion. Now I think that it could get renewed appreciation though, for sure. And so that maybe is kind of where they're leaning with this whole topic in general. And I agree with that, that I think five years from now when people can watch this removed from a pandemic, God help us, please, where the world is back to normal and we've been going to theaters for two or three years and heck, maybe after another Nolan movie comes out and then we come back and we watch this one and people can kind of look at it through new eyes, that can be a time when people will see it differently and maybe be able to respond to it a little bit better than they did here in the first time with these understandably you know heavy pieces of baggage kind of just naturally tied to it whether we like it or not they're gonna be there right now I mean Interstellar is an example Interstellar was not like the blowing everybody out of the water masterpiece when it came out And to this day, there are still people who will tell you it's absolutely terrible, but it has a legion of supporters who think it's no one's favorite, like apparently all three of us. So, um, not think it's no one's favorite, but who, you know, uh, counted amongst our absolute favorites of Nolan. And so I think that this could eventually hit some of those people where I think it will fall flat always is that it is not an overly emotional movie. And we talked about it, but I think that that's the kicker guys. Like I can love a movie so much from a fun, entertaining yada, yada, but I'll go ahead and tease it and say it right now. We don't have a connecting point. We are 0 for three on a connecting point on this movie. That to me is something that will always separate my ability to and have this movie in this special place for myself. And so I think that a lot of audience members are going to get there. Like, I got to the point where I really enjoy it, and I will watch it multiple times. But I will never, ever, ever have the type of feelings watching this movie that I can have when I watch Interstellar or The Prestige or the Batman trilogy or Inception because I feel in a way that I don't feel when I watch this. And that's not a criticism of the movie. It's just a reality when we're talking about separating Types of kind of great movies, so yeah, I don't think "cult classic" is the right word for it, but I do think that there will be a renewed appreciation, most likely, for it as time goes on, and as time Uh, goes on, of course, time or reverses.
2: Yeah, it's
1: always time.
0: Well done. I will make a bold statement and say that probably this time next year, or at some point, maybe in the the darker months of movie theater, if there's still movie theaters, it's going to get a re release. I think Tenet's going to have a re- I think I Warner Brothers that. is going to throw some stuff out there. I mean, depending on the success of their DC movies coming out this year or next, year, there's a sense of uh, let's go ahead and just do a re-release for a month or for 3 weeks and just see if people enjoy it. And you'll get the rewatchers, obviously so have you will be in the theater watching this again <laughs> even though you own every will. version of it. Probably it's on if it's on VHS, you probably own that one too. Just I'd love to
2: <laughs> right. um, yeah, I mean, like yeah. as as Nolan intended. Um, exactly. There is something that I'm I gonna. actually did want to mention, um, probably of note, when Dunkirk came out back in 2017, it also had this same kind of like conversation around it, in that the characters weren't quote deep or emotional or layered, um, and that is that is that is a criticism that I heard about the movie quite often. And although I 100% disagree because I think the emotion comes out of the situation that they're placed in rather than the characters themselves or whatever backstory they might've I think it's interesting to, to to mention that both his movies back to back this and then Dunkirk have run into that particular criticism. And I'm not sure if you guys have heard that criticism about Dunkirk. I'm just making an assumption, but, um, could it could it be a uh could it could it just be the way that uh the public or the movie going public or cinema goers just how they want their characters to be when they when they're presented with a movie i mean like that's just a a very broad question but no i mean i
1: don't think it's necessarily that i i would say the difference to me in dunkirk is that the story does have emotion it's just not in the characters that are Mm. giving you the emotion per se they're not it's not dialogue driven emotional impact it's in the score it's in the cinematography and the way that the the film moves technically through its runtime like that but that was intentional like it was built into that this one intentionally is more cold Cold. and less feely and, and touchy feely and stuff and so i i really just think that this is sort of an exception honestly i i, I get what you're saying and I, you're right there is that criticism of dunkirk but i would agree with you and say it's completely unwarranted in dunkirk's case in this case i say it's not necessarily completely unwarranted i i don't think that it's necessarily a criticism i don't think the movie has to have emotion to be successful you know what i mean like i don't think it needs that line there's enough there but i think that when we're talking about like what people think of when they list off their favorite movies of all time. This movie doesn't capture the type of feelings that people generally are going to gravitate towards overall, just a general audience. Most people kind of comment, you know Um, sometimes people are, you know, you're always going to have individuals that resonate with things against the majorities, but, but go ahead, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, I think that that's when you create a division into what makes some going experience. Different for each individual, and why people would probably categorize something as a a great popcorn movie—that's probably a byproduct—is that it's devoid of emotion. And and the criticism for the Fast and Furious movies is that oh, it's just great popcorn fodder. No, it's not. We would argue that it's got an emotional bent to it that over time you learn to appreciate because of the culmination of all these movies. Yes, it absolutely has a backbone of a bone structure of this action adventure, crazy, mission impossible style, but at the heart of it is family. And I think that what we, you know, Aaron and I, why the podcast exists is because of the emotional connection that we have with movies, whether it's in the characters, whether it's in the scenes or the situations that they're put in, it really comes down to connecting with something. And it doesn't make a movie less valuable because you don't connect with it. And this is a great example of that. It is devoid of a lot of emotion, but it doesn't take away from the enjoyment of it. Do we call this a great popcorn movie? Absolutely not. I would call this a great, heady sci-fi action movie and deserving to see more than once, but not because we're trying to find emotion, not because we're trying to connect intimately with it in the same way that I watch Coherence and Primer not because I connect with the characters, but because I really want to get my head around the science. I really want to kind of be able to piece these things together and understand right. what they're dealing with. That's that's a, an element of fun that exists. Same thing with spy thrillers or whodunits. You're not necessarily connecting with the characters and what they're going through. You're actually trying to be the Poirot in those situations and go, where could it be? Oh, they dropped a hint. Maybe it's that guy. You know, Clue as a comedy is a great example because... You're laughing all the way through this, connecting with zero characters, and yet it's beyond the laughter. It's also about trying to figure out who actually did what with what in what room, just like you're playing the board game. So there's levels of enjoyment. Emotion can be devoid in that, but it doesn't take away from that enjoyment.
2: I'm going to um, add another example. Uh, My favorite movie of all time is Sicario. Um, and you know, that is another movie that I've heard the same criticism. So, you know, because Emily Blunt's character, Kate, goes through that pretty much entire movie until the final 15 minutes sort of confused and lost and kind of like, why is this happening? Why is everything happening uh, to me this way? Or why is the FBI in on this CIA-esque operation? Like, I, I 100% agree uh patrick like you kind of like need to watch the movie as a whole and then kind of like go back to appreciate the the moments like like the actual setup of it um yeah i i completely agree with you i just needed to talk about sicario for a second because i mean (laughs) all (laughs) time
0: well and 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 the opposite is true you could have a movie full of emotion like manchester by the sea but i absolutely (laughs) hate that movie and it's partly because of all the emotion, because it's so sad,
2: it's and so there's damped. no relief
0: yeah. in sight. And it's like, why did I just spend two hours of my life feeling depressed? And that's not a good experience for me. Pursuit of happiness, another example, full of emotion, can't stand it because I don't like the experience of going through what these characters go through. It also lessens
2: the rewatchability. I mean, I mean, I it would does, yeah. I would put on Tenet ten more times before I put on Manchester by the Sea right awesome well that answers my last question for you zoheb which
1: is the ending kind of leaves it open for future adventures in this world which is not something that nolan typically does how would you feel if he was to
2: pursue that and say try to make a sequel to this so surprisingly my answer is probably going to be no (laughs) um only because look i i And it's Nolan. Like I said, you know, with Nolan, you have certain expectations as to how good the film is going to be. So, like, I mean, if you're walking into a Nolan film, you're going to expect at least a good movie, if not great. Um, And I would I would trust I would trust the fact that he has at least a good script before, you know, he he embarks on that quest. Um, But I think I think the, the the charm of this movie is left everything on this is left on the screen i think everything that happens in this movie needs to happen exactly as it happened um i think all of the characters say the dialogue as they say the dialogue as you know as well as they say the dialogue i don't want to see kind of like the further adventures of the protagonist and neil because i want to i want the adventure to play out in my head (laughs) um you know uh and whether i want to buy into the theory of whether Neil is the son of the protagonist or you know or anything like that I want to have these debates with my friends with you guys without that having been answered already in canon if that makes sense so I I don't know I'm always kind of like really I'm always more for ambiguity than I am for certainty especially in movies like Tenet where I can have a conversation especially like movies like Us right I mean like Us has a lot of these like wild and crazy theories and I just I love if the evidence is there in the movie, I love to speculate. If the evidence is not there, then I'm just like, ah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste my time, but I think, you know, you'd need Nolan would need to have something very, very special for me to be excited for a sequel to Tenet.
0: <laughs> I think Nolan knows how to land the plane. Like all of his movies feel complete when we finish watching them. I never feel like he didn't tell me everything. Um, I really kind of say for a movie like Tenet, I just, I would attribute it to me not figuring out everything. And so that's on me. But Neil said it best, whatever happened, happened. We don't need anything else from a movie like this. And it's nice to speculate. That's something that's beautiful about films that don't have sequels that just say, all right, we're good. It's why I enjoy series finales, right? Of TV shows, especially, well, not all TV series finales, but the ones that, wrap-up stories and sort of put the characters on a path that you kind of wonder, what's going to happen to these guys? And of course you get the reunions 15 years later, like, where would they be now? And I almost don't want that because I'm like, just leave it there. I just, I want to know
2: So you're not in excited about the Dexter reunion?
0: <laughs> well, having not seen Dexter in its entirety, I, I can't really be excited about that. But I will say that what I enjoy about endings is that they have they give you permission or you give they give themselves permission to leave things open-ended because they're not obligated to tell any other stories and Nolan I think is the exclamation point of that idea where he says this is it just like he doesn't apologize for throwing all this craziness at you and saying I'm not going to explain it to you I'm going to give you what I'm going to give you and that's my movie I don't think we should expect him to say all right There are many more adventures that I haven't thought of, but you know what? I feel like the audience needs to see this now. He's going to be like, and for me, from an audience standpoint, I'm fine with that kind of motivation and that kind of MO of Christopher Nolan, that when the credits roll, that's the end of that story. I don't need anything else. I'm not going to get anything else. And so I need to feel satisfied knowing that that's the film. That's the story he gave me. And I'm with it.
2: And just yep. knowing that on the horizon in about two to three years sits another Nolan intellectual property that is original, like that to me is too – it's it's too good. It's too good to turn down. 100% agree with everything you guys both just said, so I'm
1: glad we're on the same page there too because I wouldn't want any more either. And I, at the same time, love the idea that I can imagine what that might look like, and I can love the idea of these two actors – carrying on in these roles or you know playing similar characters together in another movie because I really enjoyed their chemistry um but I don't want more either I want something else new and fresh and interesting um to go here from here well like I said no connecting points for all three of us on this one uh, no big deal sometimes it happens that's okay we just talked for 2 hours about the movie so obviously we got plenty to say hope you enjoyed it zoheb thank you so much for being here with us again won't be the last time you're here. I'm sure tell everybody where they can find your podcast and where they can come talk to you online, whether they love or dislike your tenant
2: <laughs> opinions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, firstly, guys, thank you so much for having me back. It's um, it's, it's, it's been amazing. I mean, you know, the first time you're a guest on the podcast, you're a little nervous because you don't know how you're doing. But then the second time when you get invited back, you're just like, okay, I must've, have, must've have done something right. So guys, Uh, I host a podcast or co-host a podcast with three other guys called Midnight Double Feature. It's a, like you guys, a film podcast um, where we talk all things movies. Basically, we have two kinds of shows called Feature Presentation and Upcoming Attractions. Feature Presentation is a movie that we choose and go through it sequentially, uh, talk about trivia, just make jokes, just basically hang around for a few hours and talk about the movie. And Upcoming Attractions is exactly what it says on the tin basically it's movies you know we talk about trailers that have just dropped we talk about we give short little reviews of movies we've seen in the theater or that's been recently released lately we've been having pretty good luck with getting some good guests on so we've been we've been doing fantastic with that so we put our guests uh guest spots on those episodes but in terms of socials uh, our main sort of hub is called the after party that's on facebook that's our facebook group um that's where people come together and talk Talk all things movies, make jokes, post memes, however you, whatever you want. Uh, we're also on Instagram, which is at Midnight Double Feature, and Twitter at MDF Pod.
0: Fantastic, Zoheb. Well, it's looking like with this and Shutter Island, you may be becoming our heady, mind-bending film <laughs> guy. So next time we get a thinking man's film, I don't know need how that works. I'm
2: not particularly smart, so I don't know. That's <laughs> okay.
0: Neither are we. So that makes three of us. <laughs> but it makes for a great conversation, nonetheless. Well, that'll wrap up this episode of Feeling Film, guys. Thank you so much for a great conversation. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you.
0: We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way.
1: If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat.
0: And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you.
1: Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive
0: keep feeling filled.